Today I want to talk to you about the fact that we oftentimes struggle to really live grateful lives, and there's reasons for that. Um, maybe you've heard people complaining a lot. You know, you're in the coffee shop. Well, this coffee's not hot enough. Well, maybe that's a legitimate complaint. But apart from that, there's, there's many things that we tend to grumble about. We grumble about the government. And of course, there's a lot of problems with our government. We grumble about our jobs. We grumble about those same jobs five years ago and we applied for. We were super blessed to have a job interview. But now that we're at the job, we're like, oh, this, this is not, not that awesome. We grumble when we go to the mall, you know, to enjoy life in the first world. And we can't find a parking space within like 30 meters of the front door. By the way, this is one of my pet peeves. It doesn't make sense to me. You go to the mall and you drive around in circles for several minutes trying to find a spot like super close to the door. And you find it and then you go in there and you walk for miles and miles and miles (laughs) around the mall. (laughs) You'd save a lot of time just by finding an empty spot at the far end and walking into the mall. Why, why is it that we grumble? Why is it that we complain? Why is it that so often we don't see the blessings of life? We have to sit around thinking, hmm, I, don't, I don't know, what am I thankful for? It's because as human beings, we tend to be so self-absorbed. More than we may be conscious. So self-absorbed. So self-focused. Even things in our country and culture that have been historically good. Take, for instance, the human rights movement. The human rights movement, as best as I understand it, started out as a result of the acknowledgement that people are made in the image and likeness of God, and they should receive some basic respect. But if you listen to the human rights message today, it's very different. The human rights movement today is not so much about you're made in the image and likeness of God, you're a human being, and you're entitled to some basic respect. The human rights movement is more along the lines of, you need to affirm my decisions. You need to affirm my decisions regardless of whether they are moral or immoral. I want you to to tell me, I want to hear it with my ears, that my choices are right. And if you're not willing to say that, then you're discriminating against people. So we've taken the word differences, we have genuine differences, and we've replaced it with the word discrimination. So the idea is, is that if you don't agree with people on their moral choices, oh, you're, you're discriminating against them. And then the, the rhetoric gets heightened. Now you're a hater. You must hate people. Now, all of, all of this shift that we've seen take place in our society recently, as well as just the, the, the age-old systemic problem of being super concerned with ourselves, sliding into self-reliance, self-interest, self-confidence is rooted in sin. And what God is trying to do among his people as we draw closer to him is get us to a point where we're thinking little of self and a whole lot about the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to take our eyes off of self, and just look up more often. To be less interested in getting our own way and more interested in him getting his way in our lives. God 
wants to be your focal point. Not just for an hour and a half in church on Sunday, but he wants to be the focal point of your marriage and your job. He wants to be the focal point of your life when you're cutting the grass. He wants to be the perpetual focal point of your life. And when we move in that direction, life becomes more constructive than destructive. We actually accomplish things of importance. We are blessed instead of cursed. We are liked instead of loathed. There's benefits and blessings that come about as a result of honoring the Lord. And yet history is filled with self-made people and self-made nations that eventually implode or self-destruct because they are so fixated inwardly. So if you brought a Bible to church today, you can find your way over to one of the more obscure corners of our Bible, to the Minor Prophets. And just kind of thumb through the Minor Prophets. These are the 12 books at the end of the Old Testament. And there's one little three-chapter book in there called Nahum. We're studying several rarely preached books this year in our church under a series heading called Full Council. We believe that all of the Bible is profitable, but sometimes we don't spend time in some of the books. And this is one book I've never preached from until recently. So we did chapters one and two a few weeks back. Last week was our 18th birthday, so we're in Philemon. But now we're back in the last chapter of Nahum. And in Nahum, God is really speaking to the people of God. So check this out. The message is written about unbelievers way up in Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria. When you think of Assyria, you think, oh, that was the superpower of the world at that time. The capital of Assyria was Nineveh. Nineveh, about a century and a half earlier, had en masse repented and turned to God because God had sent a reluctant prophet by the name of Jonah to preach to them. And his preaching, even though he didn't want to go, he was reluctant, resulted in mass conversion. So the Ninevites had received God's word and repented, but about 150 years later, they'd risen to global power. They had conquered and crushed and raped and pillaged most of the known world at the time. And they were guilty of great evil. So this message that comes from God through Nahum, there's debate as to whether or not the Ninevites ever received it or not. Frankly, they probably didn't. But the message was written about them to the people of God. And there's probably two or three reasons why the people of God received this message. The first would be God wanted his people to know that even when great evil prevails, eventually it crumbles. Is that not relevant for our generation? Even when we see great evil taking place in the world, from individuals or nations that seem to specialize in evil doing, we can kind of take a breath and just be reminded, eventually God wins. Another reason would be to remind God's people, don't drift into the kind of evil behavior that this pagan nation is guilty of. Don't be self-absorbed. Don't be self-interested. Because we know, even under the new covenant, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that 
while we will not be judged unto damnation, we will be judged for how we've used our time, our lives for God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all, this is speaking to the church, not unbelievers, for we must all stand before the judgment seat of God that each, each of you, will receive what is due you for the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. Each of us will stand before God one day and give an account. The unbeliever for condemnation. The believer for rewards or lack of rewards based upon how we've lived our lives. So I think this is how this message was intended to function in the life of the ancient believing community. And by extension, should function in the lives of believers today. And I'd like to kind of frame this passage up in terms of three true or false questions. Remember true or false questions from school? You had a 50% chance of getting it right. We have three true or false questions I want to present to you. And then we'll find the answer in God's word. And the first true or false question, which is intended to help you evaluate your life and also remind you that in the end, God wins, even in the face of great evil, is this question. True or false? God is passive in judgment. God is passive in judgment. The correct answer to that is false. God is not passive in judgment. God sometimes waits. God sometimes delays. Thank God in our own lives, he waits and delays until we repent. But God is not passive in judgment. God's War against evildoers is sure. So after putting up with the evil of the Ninevites for a long time, here's what God says, continuing this war theme from chapter 2. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. This is God waging war against the Ninevites. Woe, meaning, meaning, Essentially, in modern language, you guys are dead meat. Woe. You're not going to win. You're going to lose. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the dead bodies. So in this prophecy, God is saying, look, when I come upon the city, which is full of lies and which is full of the plunder of all of the nations that they have conquered and which has blood on their hands because they've slaughtered so many innocents. When I come and look at the, 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 the adjectives and the descriptive words, there's going to be the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping, bounding, Charging, flashing, glittering. There's going to be hosts of slain. Heaps of corpses. Why all this descriptive language? Because God wants to arrest your attention. If I say to you, you're in trouble. Like, okay, I'm in trouble. If I say you are in a boatload. A mountain of trouble. The trouble is sure. It's going to come rapidly. It's going to come soon. Be ready. Then you're like, oh, I better listen to this. Lots of descriptions because God wants to arrest our attention because so often 
believers and unbelievers alike, we know that we're going to be held to account for the way that we live our lives as believers. The unbeliever is going to experience eternal condemnation from God, but we just live our lives as if that's, well, that's, I don't know if that's really going to happen. Some people have even gone so far as to teach that hell will not be populated. That at the end of the day, everybody is going to be okay with God. In some way, shape, or form, God's going to work it all out. He's threatening, he's hissing, he's hollering, he's yelling. But at the end of the day, he's going to buckle and you'll be okay for all of eternity. And that, that's a deceptive lie. Because while God is rich, he's wealthy in love and mercy and grace. God is also completely holy. And he will not allow evil just to kind of slip by and to go unpunished. God warns this powerful nation, get low. Because I'm about to tear you down. The Ninevites had walked all over people, had destroyed all kinds of people's lives, had tried to take the place of God in their lofty estate, and God, in very vivid language, makes it clear he's not apathetic toward sin. You'll, you'll remember, too, that this is very much of a one-sided battle. There's, there's like no fighting back. There's no strategic outmaneuvering. It's not like there's ten battles and, you know, God wins six, and they win four, and it's back and forth, and nobody's sure of the outcome. It's not like that. It's God just comes in, and there's just absolute destruction. God doesn't lose one angel, one saint in the process. God just wipes them out. God is not passive in his judgment. We, we can be passive in our judgment. We can be passive in our discipline. Our legal, legal systems can be very passive. You you catch someone red-handed doing something heinous and wrong. And the person gets let off because there's like a legal loophole. But everybody knows they're guilty. Like, how did that happen? Or on a lesser level, you're in the mall. And you see a parent. They got a little child. The child's mouthing off and disobeying. I've heard kids say things like, I hate you, to their parent. No. Parents are like, oh, so frustrating. What do I do? They just walk away. Like, how about... Stop being a lazy parent. Exercise some discipline. Call the child to account. But again, passivity in judgment is so often the name of the game. But God is not passive in his judgment. God is not a lazy parent. All the evildoers out there that are taking lives and abusing children and slaughtering the unborn and waging unjust war and lying and cheating and stealing, they're not going to get away with it. And nor will we. You're either punished for your own sin or you're cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you are cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're, you're sort of supposed to kind of live differently. Knowing that one day you will be called to account for how you lived your life in light of the grace and mercy that you've received. So is God passive in judgment? No, God's not passive in judgment. Here's another question we could ask, true or false? You can degrade others without consequence. You can abuse others. You can attack others. You can commit grievous grievous sins against others without consequence. No, that's false as well. Here's what God says to the Ninevites. Again, a nation that had 
a city that was part of a nation that had conquered many. He uses a word picture. And the word picture is of a charming prostitute that has deceived many to sleep with her, has taken money, has destroyed lives, has destroyed marriages. And many people have been duped. But the charming prostitute eventually is exposed for her shameful behavior. And she becomes a laughingstock. She becomes ashamed of her ways. People pelt her with filth as she walks through the streets. This is the word picture we see in verses 4 to 7. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. Graceful and of deadly charms. Who betrays nations with her whorings. And peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. That's the second time we've seen this phraseology and name. We saw it in chapter 2. And I communicated to you at the time, like, this is not what you want to hear God say about you. Like, when God says, I am against you, that's like, whoa, that's like the worst thing you could possibly hear from God. You don't want to hear that from God. Other people might hate your guts, they might put you down, they might belittle you and bully you, but you don't ever want to hear God say, I am against you. Because if God's against you, you lose 100% of the time. I will lift up your skirt, so meaning that to this prostitute, I will put you to shame. I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness, and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, what a waste. Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Again, the portrayal of the busy prostitute who initially, look at the language of the text, she charms, meaning she deceives people, but then betrays them, stabs them in the back. The nation of Nineveh had presented themselves as a nation full of hedonism and pleasure, probably made several deceitful alliances with other nations and then attacked and crushed because at the end of the day, while they presented themselves as offering something special, something pleasurable, All they did was bring about death and destruction. And God says to the shameful nation, I will shame you in front of others. The world will look at you and they will see your nakedness. There's not a normal person in this room that would feel comfortable just prancing around naked and not experience some form of shame or humiliation or belittlement. God says, I will shame you. The text says, People will throw filth at you. This is crass language, by the way, in the Bible. The filth spoken of here is not topsoil. It's the stuff that comes out of sewers. I will throw filth at you. You will become contemptuous to the the people around you. The Bible also says people will shrink back. Here's how this works. When you're powerful and you're wealthy and you're rich and 
you tend to attract people to you because you're like, well, I want some of that. I want, I want to benefit from your influence, from your wealth. And you develop relationships, but those relationships, you know, mile wide, inch deep. They're also self-focused. And when your selfishness is exposed, what happens? People shrink back. I don't want to be part of this thing. I don't want to be part of this guy's life. I don't want to be anywhere near that loser. And they shrink back. And they treat you with contempt, meaning that Nineveh had nothing to look forward to but loss of influence and loss of relationships. In our world, we have plenty of degradation taking place. You think you can abuse your spouse and get away with it long term? You think you can abuse children and get away with it long term? You think you can legislate evil and get away with it long term? You think you can be a nation that allows rampant immorality and get away with it long term? No, you're not going to get away with it. Eventually, God will judge that degradation and you will be exposed as naked and hopeless, you will lose. In verse 19 of the same chapter, we read, there is no easing your heart. Your wound is grievous. There's no hope. No one's going to be able to heal you. Come and put ointment on your wounds. No one's going to have a bandage available for you when I'm done with you, God says. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands over you. Yes! How would you like that to be the case at your funeral? That this person has been so evil, so abusive, so self-focused, all we can do is like, thank God they're gone. Thank God. It's like Hitler, right? How'd it go for Hitler? Destroyed millions of lives, ransacked all kinds of other countries, had everything he wanted, Where does his life end? Hunkered down in a bunker, kills himself. How about Gaddafi? All of his pomp and power and circumstance and people are cheering. Yes, he's finally gone. That's the fate of the evildoer. Maybe not to that extreme in in this human world, but that's the fate of evil, the evildoer. And it does kind of beg the question, like, will people cheer when you're gone? Finally, finally, we get to get rid of this guy. Or were they genuinely mourn because you love people? You poured out your life for others. Here's the irony of life. In our humanness, and it's like built into our flesh as fallen people, we just have this notion, life's about me. It's about getting ahead. It's about acquiring what I want. It's about seeking pleasure and finding pleasure in stuff or relationships or whatever it is. And to get there, we brag, or we posture, or we boast, or we steal, or we gossip, or we hate, or whatever. And we think that's, that's the way to get where I want to go. And at the end of the day, like, no one even likes us for that. Who here wants to hang out with a braggart? Who here wants to hang out with a boaster, a thief, a liar, a taker? But again, in our, in our twisted thinking, We so often live with an extreme focus on self, lifting up self, lifting up self instead of lifting up God. We even do it sometimes through religious structures and systems. But at the end of the day, there's nothing but shame and hopelessness that comes from that kind of a life. 
You might be thinking, yeah, but I, I'm different. I'm, I'm pretty secure. I'm pretty strong. So we've got a third true or false question to think about. And that is true or false. We are very fragile. True or false? True. We are very fragile. Even the most powerful is very, very fragile. So as God continues to unload in this prophecy towards Nineveh, again, think superpower, think like the equivalent of the USA or China, which is on the rise. Like think of a great and mighty nation that seems invincible that no one can touch, which can so often cloud your memory of how vulnerable and fragile you actually are. Even in our own country, we're not exactly a global superpower, but we got it going here in Canada. We've got nice geography. We've got lots of resources. We have economic stability. We have people from all over the world that want to live in Canada. I think, ah, no one's going to touch us. We're nice. Look at us. Everyone likes Canada. If they did get a little rough, we could start building some more tanks or jets. I mean, we, we're pretty secure here in Canada. Canada's probably going to be around for thousands of years. We can start to think that. We can think that about our own lives. I'm, I'm healthy. I'm fit. You know, I got lots of opportunities. Look at my friend list. I'm invincible. So to remind Nineveh of how fragile they were, God says, hey, do you remember Thebes? Do you remember Thebes in Greece? Surrounded by water? This great and powerful nation from yesteryear? Where are they today? What happened to them? So listen listen to this, verses 8 through 17. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile? With water around her, her rampart, a sea, and water, her wall. I mean, this was like an island. There was no jets back in the day. If you could surround yourself with water, who's going to take you down? Cush was her strength. Egypt, too, and without limit, put, and the Libyans were her helpers. In other words, she had all kinds of allies. And if you have allies, you feel what? Strong, secure, maybe even invincible. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. She's attacked. And listen to the gruesome depictions of what the enemy did to the residents of Thebes. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. That's pretty grotesque. For her honored men, lots were cast. They were sold into slavery. And all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. Now that might sound a little bit inappropriate to the modern ear where we have women in our armed forces. But back in the day of hand-to-hand combat, like 2,700 years ago, that just wouldn't take place. So just understand the description in light of the context here. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. So this next section is like, hey, prepare all you want. You're still going to lose. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. 
go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. In other words, build your walls higher. Get your cement mixers out, bring in the cement trucks, throw some rebar into it, build your walls higher. And when I show up, see if you're going to last. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. I will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust spread its wings and fly away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes, meaning your educators, like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in the cold of the day. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. In other words, all your princes, all your scribes, all these leaders, they're going to abandon the city as soon as I come. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains and none with none to gather them. You will lose. And the battle is futile. The creator will uncreate. The one who gave life will take life back. The one who is sovereign over all, whose position position you have tried to usurp and steal as if you're, the, you're God and you're the creator. He will come and he will judge all unrighteousness. So, a person with even 10 points on the IQ scale will conclude, hmm, it's probably not a good idea to live my life with me at the center. It's probably a good idea to keep Christ at the center of my life. To keep Christ at the center, to bring him into my church, my marriage, my parenting, my job, my finances, my health, to keep God at the center. The Christian call is about trying to figure out how do I glorify God in all aspects of my life and stop, as is my natural bent, trying to glorify myself. How do I do that? I keep God at the center. I live my life for his honor and for his glory. I remind myself this life is just a blip, just a blip wedged between two very long eternities But the way that I live this life has a huge bearing on the eternity to come. It's about living my life as the writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us with an over-the-sun perspective, with a heavenly perspective. Aware that God is king and we are his servants. If you don't live that way and you try to be mighty and self-absorbed, well, the mighty will fall and the mighty will submit to God Your allies will flee. You might feel very secure. Maybe you're in politics and you have a lot of followers. I feel pretty secure. Hey, talk to some ex-politicians. My dad used to be a politician. Dad, how many people were calling you when you were the mayor, when you were the warden? How many called you after? Nobody calls you. Nobody cares. They're on to the next person. Your allies are fickle. They're here today, gone tomorrow. Maybe you're relying upon your athletic prowess. (laughs) Yeah, who remembers who won like the gold medal in uh, bobsledding in like 1970, whatever? I don't, who knows? It's living for the moment. Who cares who won last year or 20 years ago? 
We need to live our lives for God. Our allies will flee. The mighty will fall around us. If we focus on popularity and fame and power for our own honor and glory, it's a bad way of living your life. But if God stewards you intellect or finances or opportunities or a job, what you need to figure out is how do I use those to bring honor and glory to God? And in all of that, as you're seeking to live for the Lord, and at times you have those like depressing moments where you're like, why is there so much evil in our world? Like, what in the world is happening? Be responsible to react appropriately, but know this, at the end of the day, even if we don't see great change in our country or our world or our nation, God will have his way because God is still very much on his throne. He didn't slip off. He's still very much on his throne. And God warns the evildoer that he will lose. At the end of your life, let's all pray and hope that people won't cheer our passing, but they'll mourn it because we introduce them to God. We live their lives with a God focus. We loved them. We cherished them. We demonstrated the eyes are off of self and increasingly on the one who created us and afforded us all of the wonder opportunities that we have so much to be thankful for today.